Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder. Okay, today on the show, I'm very happy to, very happy to have with us Mr. Paul Moore. He's starting his third decade as a real estate investor. He's a two-time past finalist for the Michigan Entrepreneur of the Year, author of three books on real estate investing, and manages two recession-resistant commercial real estate funds at Wellings Capital. He also has a podcast called How to Lose Money and a new book out called on self-storage called Storing Up Profits, Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. So a little bit of an overview without further ado. Paul, welcome. How are you? Devin, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Good, good. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. So there's lots of stuff we can dive into today. Um, we talk a lot about multifamily on the show. I can't wait to learn more about self-storage from you and some other things that are going on. But as a primer to kick it off here for folks that are not already familiar with your podcast and your, your books, et cetera, what, what's your background and what brought you into to real estate? What was the attraction there? Yeah, so I had an, an MBA and an engineering degree. I went to Ford Motor Company for five years. I really didn't hate the corporate world, but I just didn't fit. So I uh, jumped out and became an entrepreneur uh, about 30 years ago, I guess it was. And um, went. Uh, we had our own company. It did really well in a, in a short time, sold that. And I moved from Detroit to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia to start a nonprofit organization. And I found myself getting really bored really quick. I was in my early 30s and full of energy. And the people I had around me were very laid back. And so uh, a friend of mine moved to, to the Blue Ridge Mountains with us, who a longtime uh, friend. And he had a lot of background in repairing and maintenance for uh, apartments. So we decided to go down to the courthouse steps one December day to see if it was true that you could buy houses for less than 50 cents on the dollar on the courthouse steps. And we walked up and we were the only people there. We bought a house and we launched a real estate career. We started flipping houses. Then we got into building modular homes. We did a subdivision. Um, I flipped uh, dozens of waterfront lots at a resort and uh, eventually got into multifamily finally about 11 years later. Yeah, outstanding. Uh, I love it. So that first house there was something, uh, no, no competition then there on those courthouse steps, huh? Well, yeah, the, the unemployment rate in that town was 22%. <laughs> Wow. wow. So, and uh, that was in 2000 when things were generally still pretty good. So um, we didn't have any, we didn't know, you know, we paid 32,000 for a $65,000 house. And so I'm really glad we did it. It was a good start. We actually sold it quickly, FISBO, um, just after painting it and sweeping it out. But nice. we found out later that it wasn't always that easy. You know what I mean? It was that trick first flip, right? I know. I'm glad it happened that way because it got us squarely into real estate. We fell in love pretty quick. Yep. Yep. Makes sense. And that's certainly a common entry point for folks. People can wrap their head around a single family project and um, that's good to get success out of the gate, but that can be a little bit of a, a trap. Sometimes the, the profits uh, are tough to keep a handle on, on flips and they're kind of, there's just so many variables. Right. Um, 
And so what, what led you to pursuing other, other real estate um, asset classes, other real estate projects after you've been in kind of the land and the, and the flipping uh, game for a little while? Yeah. So in 2008, obviously, not only was my business tied to real estate, but so were my investments. So even though I had a million and a half in the bank in in 1997, exactly 10 years later, in the fall of 07, I had two and a half million in debt. And so uh, went through a really difficult process and, and decided in 2008 to actually put real estate on hold temporarily. And I actually studied marketing, copywriting, and actually pursued that for about two or three years while I kept my real estate business going passively. I was making enough from the passive uh, investments in my real estate business, even through the recession, to do fine. Uh, but I got to know marketing, copywriting. And when I came out of that, I decided I wanted to get into commercial. You know, I always wanted to get into commercial multifamily or something larger, but I didn't know who to trust or how to even get started. And when I finally figured that out, we we actually started off with a bang. Uh, my partner and I built a ground up multifamily, quite a large one in North oh, wow. Dakota in the oil boom. And uh, we went from zero to 60 in just a few months. And uh, that was quite a way to get started. I'll tell you that. Yeah, no kidding. So that was, it was 60 doors that you built? Oh, no, I, I was just the expression. The phrase, <laughs> okay. Sorry, the expression. No, yeah, no we actually, it was more like, I think it was 150 total units. Um, I call them units. They weren't really apartments. These were more, uh, it was multifamily, but it was for oil workers sure. working in oil boom. And so they, these were actually cabins that had bedrooms in them. Wow. Uh, detached or was it all one big? Yeah, there were some attached in fourplexes. We had 11 fourplexes. And then I think we had um, a whole bunch of duplexes after that. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you guys have a sense that there was a, a gun to your head when you're building ground up and you're kind of dependent on on what's going on with oil, right? I mean, what was the what was the the thinking there with uh, with that, or was it just such a bonanza at the time that it just made sense to do it? Yeah, so I can tell you from my 2011 perspective, it was the bonanza that we right. had to jump into. From a 2020 perspective, looking back, I never in a million years would do that project again because it was dependent on so many variables that we couldn't control, including oil price. We sold the facility for a very nice chunk of change in 2013 or 14 uh, when oil prices were around 100 a barrel, and they said they'd never go below that. Of course, they said that. And of course, they went to $30 a barrel months later. So the people who bought it were very well capitalized, but and they've done well. But you know, honestly, it could have been a disaster for, uh, you know, a smaller buyer. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a wild ride with the, uh, with anything tied to the price of a barrel of oil, for, for sure. Right. Um, well, that's interesting. That's certainly a big splash in multifamily and different than a lot of folks get started. What led you to your book on multifamily investing, um, The Perfect Investment? And when, when did that come out? And, and how, what was that process like leading up to, to writing and publishing that? 
Yeah, so in 2014, I decided to jump back into Class B, Class C, value-add, multifamily. I decided I didn't want to be on the wrong end of a development going south if the economy went south. And so I studied this, and I actually hired a mentor and went through a fairly intensive uh, one-year mentoring program with that mentor. Um, And during that year, I started writing special reports, and I realized, well, I could string these together and put together a book. And so I did, and I self-published that in the fall of 2016, The problem I had was, you know, being a little older, I came to the conclusion that I did not want to overpay and I was very resistant to risk after uh, I saw a friend's Hyatt Hotel deal that I actually helped a lot with in Minot, North Dakota, go south. Um, I didn't really feel like I want to take any risk that I could help as much as I could help it. So I found myself being outbid or outgunned over and over and over in trying to acquire multifamily over the next several years. So with the not so humble title, The Perfect Investment, I was actually finding myself not finding any deals to add to our portfolio for a number of years. Sure. Yeah, certainly um, that's been a story for us as well. Last couple of years getting bid, we were talking before the show, outbid by a million dollars. You know, you push your underwriting as far as you can, max out some of your assumptions uh, and then somebody comes in with another million dollars on top. You're going, well, I don't know what right. they think that, that I can't see, but we're out. Right. Yeah. Um, certainly that's been the case the last couple of years. So did that, that uh, circumstance then kind of lead you to what, what did that lead lead to? Obviously you still want to pursue investing and so forth. It, you know, it led us to take a really hard look at ourselves, our strengths and weaknesses. And um, we actually, around that time, around two, a little over two years ago, came to the conclusion that self-storage and mobile home parks were recession resistant, like, like multifamily is. But they had a whole lot more mom and pop operators than multifamily. You know, 93% of multifamily over 50 units is owned by corporations. They've typically maxed out or at least, you know, done a lot of the value add. But a very high percentage of self-storage and mobile home parks are owned by mom and pop operators. They don't have the resources, the knowledge, or even care about, you know, maximizing income and driving more value. And as a result, those can be acquired from these mom and pops uh, often in a way that you couldn't, that I haven't seen in multifamily at least for a while. At the same time, we evaluate our strengths and weaknesses and where we were, at least where we believe we were in the cycle, late in the cycle, and thought, you know, we really don't think it would be wise for us to undertake this ourselves. So we actually decided to go out and look for the very best in class operators we could find in self storage and mobile home parks. We invested with several of those, and then we eventually built, uh, actually launched a few funds to allow us to diversify across geographies, asset types, operators, and strategies. So that's what we do now. Excellent. If you don't mind, you, and, and you'd indulge me on the fund structure, and how, how did you guys set that up? Is it, a, is it open-ended? Is it just kind of a one-time raise? And how did you structure that? We set up each fund to go for about a year. And we actually extended one to go two years. But so we raised money for about a year. 
And uh, we actually are able to get preferential treatment from the operators since we are a very large investor with them. We might be bringing, for example, 30 or 35% of their equity. Sure. And so we get a preferential arrangement. And that preferential arrangement allows us to pass along a structure to our individual investors that <clears throat> puts them about on par as if they'd invested directly in the deal themselves. Um, so for example, we get an 8% pref from a typical operator. We might pass along a little more like a 10% pref to our investors. And I know I'm really just summarizing real quick here. Sure. Uh, an invest, a typical operator might give a 60, 40 split above the pref, but they might give us, for example, an 80, 20 split. And that allows us when we do an 80, 20 split, that allows 80% of 80%, the investor gets 64%. So it's just about the same as if they'd invested directly, but by investing with us, they get to diversify across a number of operators and projects. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's, uh, that's really nice that your preferential treatment gets passed on and uh, is a benefit to the, to the end investor. So for folks that aren't familiar with the self-storage model, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. You've got units, you rent them, pay your bills, and there's cash flow. But um, having been steeped in the multifamily world for so long, I'm sure there were some things in the self-storage world that um, you found different, maybe some pros and cons. I'd love to know more about, uh, about that and, and why you like that asset class. You know, it's funny when uh, the first call I ever had about self-storage was with a guy in early 2018. And he started talking about value add for self-storage. And I was so narrow-minded, uh, you know, about being so focused on apartments that I actually, Devin, I, I actually think I almost laughed out loud because I'm <laughs> picturing a concrete floor, three metal sides, right. a metal back, and a metal door, a steel roll-up door. And I'm like, value add? I mean, I can, when an apartment dweller moves out, I can imagine upgrading lights countertops, appliances, paint, flooring, and lots of other things. I couldn't think about any value adds in self-storage, but I was shocked to find that there were actually just as many in self-storage. And when buying from a mom and pop, there might be more as a percentage of income. So for example, you can add a showroom uh, or upgrade your showroom and provide you know, retail items like locks, boxes, tape, scissors, um, another upgrade is just, you know, charging late, late fees or admin fees. Uh, another upgrade, a big one, is if you have a spare acreage, and they often do when bought from mom and pops. You know, they might have been developed in the 80s on six acres, but they're only using three. Uh, you can add more climate-controlled storage there if the demand in the community you know, allows you to do that. I mean, the, the land is basically paid for when you bought the facility. And so you've got a really advan a great advantage if you're going to build a new facility on part of that. A real simple one to understand is just adding paid truck rental. So getting a contract with U-Haul or Penske trucks. And here's how the math works on that. As we all know, the, um, uh, the value formula in commercial real estate is value of the property is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. Well, of course, it's the same for self-storage. 
Now, if you add a U-Haul, um, that's just a stroke of a pen. You're signing a contract. You don't really have to spend a whole lot of CapEx on that, if any. And um, you bring the U-Haul trucks in, you start renting them. You've already got a full-time employee anyway. I'm going to do the math on this. So you should be able to make two to $5,000 a month from adding um, self-storage, uh, excuse me, adding a truck rental to self-storage. So let's say $4,000 a month, okay? So $4,000 uh, times, right. let's do our value formula, times 12 months, that's $48,000 added to the net operating income with no significant cost. Divide that by about a 6% cap rate. Again, value is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. Well, look at that, Devin, $800,000 added to the uh, value of the facility. That sounds like magic. I mean, if you paid $3 million for a facility and you financed about two thirds of that, so two of the 3 million, your million dollar equity just went up from million to 1.8 million from this very simple value add. And there are lots of others I didn't mention. So this is sort of the magic in self-storage, just like it is in multifamily. Uh, that formula works very, very well then. We love self-storage because tenants are sticky. I mean, generally they don't leave when you do a, a price increase. It's not really worth it for them. I mean, if you increase a, an apartment rent by 6%, they might move rather than pay 60 bucks extra a month for a year they're locked into. But in a self-storage deal, if they have a $100 rent, they're probably not going to spend a Saturday, load up a U-Haul, get their friends together to, to move everything just to save six bucks a month, especially when they're only locked in for another month. So we really like self-storage. Yeah. And, and uh, is $100 rent kind of uh, a typical kind of median price point? And is it, is it all month to month across the board or does that vary? They're all month to month. And... Um, uh, you know, a five by five might rent for 75 bucks a month. A 10 by 10 might rent for 90 to 130 bucks a month. 120 is the national average right now. And so, um, you know, $100 is just a kind of a, a guesstimate on, you know, what a typical rental is. Sure. Sure. So going up 10 points on a, you know, $100 rent is, is a huge percentage bump. And yeah, you're right. Nobody's going to go spend a weekend to do anything about spending another 120 bucks a year with you, right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's the thought. So once they get them in there, that's why you see a lot of these um, $1 move-in specials, Devin, because sure. they can afford to, to get them in. You know, once they get them in there, they often say they're going to stay six to eight months. They often actually stay two to three years or more. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Make it a really low barrier to entry and the data shows they're going to stick around. What do you guys look for in terms of demographics when you're, when you're buying these? Is it always a, a takeover uh, for these things or is it a new construction or both? And, and what are you looking for in terms of location and, and so forth? Yes. Yeah, so the middle third of my new book talks about three different major strategies. One is taking over an, uh, an existing facility and doing value add. The second is, of course, ground up construction. And we've done uh, a little bit of that. Um, we did one in uh, Minneapolis last year that's going very well. They're about to have their grand opening. And then the third one, which is a little less obvious, is, um, re, uh, is converting an existing space into self-storage. So 
a friend of mine named AJ. Um, he uh, was on the Bigger Pockets podcast July 4th of 2018. He's got a very dramatic story. Uh, he converted an old um, Kmart, Super Kmart in Reno, Nevada. He, had, um, he sold off the parking lot to a multifamily developer. And then he converted uh, the, self, the uh, store to self-storage. He cut the building in half as part of this to get more exterior walls. And he actually uh, has two and a half million cash in it, five million debt, so seven and a half million in it total. Uh, he turned down uh, an offer of, I believe, 25 or $26 million. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, because he believed it was worth more than that. So yeah. um, conversions can be very, very profitable. And as far as your question on demographics, there are four major sort of pass-fail things we look at immediately. These things can be looked at in many if a self-storage facility is something we're interested in pursuing. Now, Devin, there's a national average of about seven feet for every man, woman, and child in a given radius. That might be a one and a half or one mile radius in an urban area, a three mile radius, maybe four in a typical suburban area, a place like maybe North San Antonio, and then up to a five or 10 mile radius in a rural area, though I wouldn't recommend self-storage in a rural area. Now in places like Florida, Texas, and California where they have very few basements and it's too hot to use an attic, that Square footage could be up to 10 or so square feet per person. And that is growing as far as the secular trend. It is growing long term. So we can do a quick analysis using a software called Radius Plus, And we can find out what uh, the uh, square footage of storage is per person in a given radius. And so if it's already got, let's say, 12 square feet per person, that's a really bad sign. But if it's only got, say, two square feet or less, that's a phenomenal, wonderful first sign for our demographic study. The second thing is we're going to look for the number of cars per day or vehicles per day passing on the road. Third, we're going to want to make sure we're very visible to those cars that pass. And then number four, we're going to look a little lower at a little bit less, I should say, at income. Income, you know, we don't want it to be in a really low income area, but it doesn't necessarily have to be very, very high income area either. It would probably generally be at least in a place where you'd have B minus level apartments up to A apartments. That's what we'd be looking for as far as income in the radius. Gotcha. So with that kind of a demographic profile and some of the other things that you've got a lot to work with, right? In terms of if you're looking nationwide at this stuff, um, what about, you know, one of the things we look at in multifamily is kind of the landlord friendliness of the, of the state, you know, is that, is that a component here too? How does it work if somebody doesn't pay? You know, it's, we want to be somewhat landlord friendly. For example, we don't really want to be doing too much in California, but Honestly, it's not the same. I mean, a a, a judge and and the rules will be different. You can do a five-day quit notice in California to to an apartment tenant, and it might be eight months to get them out, eight months without payment. In self-storage, typically, especially in places like Texas, Tennessee, Kentucky, you know, landlord-friendly states, you can actually get a judgment very quickly on the fifth day when you do the the you know pay or quit 
uh, type thing. The morning of the sixth day, if they haven't paid, you can change their code on the gate and you can actually place an overlock on their stuff so they can't get to it even to take it out if they want to and skip town. They can't get to it until they've paid. And you can keep it that way until you eventually auction their stuff off. So I'm telling you, it's much easier than in that regard than most arenas. Yeah, yeah, that's a completely different game. Have there been some interesting stories on fines or auctions, or is it pretty mundane uh, stuff that goes in here for the most part? <laughs> it's much more mundane than the Storage Wars uh, you know, TV <laughs> shows and all that would have. I mean, I didn't personally have any involvement with this. I did hear of a guy who found uh, like ten dollars or $20,000 worth of silver coins in a, in a self-storage facility. Um, there's rumors that, you know, people use these to create, you know, to do meth labs and all that, but that's right. not possible because there's no water and you need water for meth labs, much right. more likely in other places like mobile homes or apartments. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Such a, such a simple compared to multifamily. I mean, we got plumbing and tenants and toilets and, 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 uh, work orders and stuff like that. I mean, there's really nothing that you're doing to the unit itself. Um, are you doing anything in terms of automation with entry access with access to the individual units? I mean, how much of this stuff can be, can be automated or aided by technology in a way that maybe other things can't? Yeah. As we record this, of course, we're in the middle of the COVID virus situation. And we've seen a lot of facilities we've invested in have increased uh, traffic and increased occupancy in part because of college students heading home in a, in a, you know, uh, on short notice. But the best places we've seen who have grown in the last six weeks have been those who had automated rentals. In other words, they could rent online, maybe from an iPhone in the parking lot or from their home. And then they could actually go to their unit, get their gate code, um, and they could also go and get in their unit without ever interacting face-to-face with somebody. So that's one big plus. Another plus is in smaller facilities, you know, under 30,000 units, which is about three, excuse me, 30,000 square feet, which is about 300 units or or below. Uh, A lot of folks are automating those. It used to be that you had to get a $35,000 kiosk that sometimes broke. But now you can use your iPhone. And so it's made it much, much easier and cheaper to automate than it has in the past. It's, it's definitely something that can be very well automated. Right. So we talked earlier about a low barrier to entry and some sort of uh, something attractive on the front end that makes it really easy to get in the unit because of the stickiness of these customers. Uh, I can't imagine anything simpler than just literally driving by, pulling up a phone, and they're in the unit. In, in minutes? I mean, is it that, is that how it works? It can be. Yeah. yeah. It, it can definitely be that simple. Yeah. That's, that's huge. I mean, there's basically no barrier entry at that point other than a right. credit card and an iPhone, which, which everybody has. So right. um, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So wh- what do you guys from, I guess, kind of an allocation perspective, are you, you know, kind of all in on self-storage? Is it a little bit of mobile home self-storage multifamily? And, and what's kind of your outlook currently and, and you know, moving forward on the, on the mix there? Yeah, we're about 50-50 um, self-storage in mobile home parks with a very small allocation also to uh, apartments. And um, 
we're thinking that with this COVID emergency that there's going to be quite a few apartments, even though my book talks about the fact that there were very, very few foreclosures in multifamily in 2009. Uh, we think that this time maybe there'll be a few more. Maybe the uh, downturn will be a little bit more harsh, especially in the early years of that, you know, the next year or two. Um, and we think that there might be some multifamily opportunities from banks that we should be taking a look at in addition to our self-storage and mobile home parks. We're also going to look at senior living. This would be pre-assisted living, senior living, uh, which has not been affected that we know of by the COVID emergency at this point. We're, we're going to be taking a look at that at some point. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, from what we've seen on the multifamily side, if folks are either running out of interest only periods, which has an impact for operators or really just up against maturities. I mean, right. yes. um, we've seen a few of those where if you're up against a maturity in Q1, Q2 of 2020, uh, it's, it's going to be tough. And, it's and the banks be really tough. It can be tough for the banks too. You know, they don't want to be landlords. And um, we all knew the music was going to stop at some yeah, point and it was right. going to be an unforeseen black swan event. And um, that's exactly what happened. So yeah. um, I guess no, no surprise there that it did happen. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, we're kind of looking at the same thing. Uh, what, you know, what kind of opportunities is going to shake loose? Hopefully there's some abatement on what we've been seeing on property tax increases in Texas, which has been just astronomical the last few years. Maybe it stems the tide there and maybe it, maybe it shakes, uh, shakes the tree in terms of some other opportunities. We'll, we'll see. Right. It's too early to tell at this point, but right. But uh, yeah, I think there could be, could be some opportunities to be had in, in multifamily. Uh, th this is great. This is a great overview. So you've got your new book out uh, on self-storage. Would you mind, I kind of mentioned it at the top of the show, but would you mention that for listeners if they want to go pick that up on Amazon? I have to remember the name first. So um, it <laughs> is, um, I have to pull it up on my phone or my uh, screen. Sorry, put Storing you on the spot up there. Profits. Yeah, I, I had named it something else for the last year and a half. I just found out that the publisher renamed it. And I think it's much better. Uh, Storing Up Profits is the name. The subtitle is Capitalize on America's Obsession with Stuff by Investing in Self-Storage. This is going to be published by Bigger Pockets Publishing uh, approximately the summer of 2020. And uh, it should be available for pre-order uh, before it comes out in the next few months. Got it. Um, Paul, this has been great. I, I appreciate it. If folks want to connect with you and with Wellings Capital, what's a, what's a good avenue for them to do that? They can visit us at our website. It's wellingscapital.com. That's W-E-L-L-I-N-G-S-C-A-P-I-T-A-L, wellingscapital.com. Excellent. We'll link to that in the show notes. And I sincerely appreciate your time. It was great to catch up. Wish you guys the best of luck this year. Absolutely, Devin. We should definitely stay in touch as this thing unfolds and see what kind of a, 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 you know opportunities for both of us. Yep. Yep, absolutely. There'll be something. Hard to tell yep. what it's going to look like, but right. there'll be some. Yep. Thanks, Devin. Thanks, Paul. Thank you for listening to the DJE Podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.